This is why we're doing this. We've got Joel Garvin back on with us. He's a Urantia book reader, uh, 20 plus years, maybe more, I think more. Uh, and he's a brilliant man. He's a scientist uh, by trade and, and a very learned uh, individual. And we talked a lot about, well, a lot of Urantia stuff in the last interview. But the one thing that we didn't talk about, Joel, was your original question that actually got us together, which is, is there a universal religion? Which was the name of your presentation that you presented earlier this year uh, before a group of ufologists, people who uh, believe earnestly in life being elsewhere in the universe. We're not alone. We never answered the question, <laughs> at least to my satisfaction. So welcome back. Okay. How are you, Joel? <laughs> well, thanks, Jim. Yes, yeah, so happy to be back with you. I'm really enjoying our conversations here, and I really hope it's interesting uh, to your audience about the topics that, that we're discussing and what we'll discuss in the future. Well, we so, did get a lot of good feedback. A lot of folks emailed me and said that they really enjoyed the, the interview a lot. So that's why you're back. If they had complained, uh, I might not have called you back. So, <laughs> Okay, that's fair <laughs> enough. Okay, so the so, question so, here, is there a universal religion among the advanced inhabited planets? Okay, it's a big question, and there's a lot loaded into even how the question is phrased, because <clears throat> so one thing it implies is that there is religion, although it's not defined in the question itself, then the other part that's implied is that there are beings living on advanced inhabited planets, yeah, right? Right. So that there are such. It's not just us uh, Earth humans living on this little blue-green marble, you know, spinning, uh, you know, in this tiny little solar system of ours in a vast, vast cosmos. Okay? So, as any Urantia book reader knows, there are many, 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 many trillions of inhabited planets. Now, uh, while the book definitely says that there are, you know, many of those planets are far in advance of Earth humanity in their evolution and development, you know, if you just think about it from what standard cosmology from the standpoint of astrophysicists, like a Carl Sagan, okay, who's no longer with us, but did brilliant work, and some others, it might be a Stephen Hawking or, or, or others. If you think about what they say about how many planets are out there, you know, we've been discovering planets upon planets. Everywhere we look now, we're, we're seeing planets going around stars. So the there's just such a plethora of solar systems, you know, similar or dissimilar to our own, but they're everywhere. Everywhere they look, they're seeing planets. In virtually every place they look, there seems to be some planets in what are considered the Goldilocks zone, which would be essentially the inhabitable zone around the particular star that those planets orbit. So it implies that, hey, if there was life here, on this little planet that we inhabit, why couldn't there be life on any of these other planets that are in the Goldilocks zone? And, and just from the standpoint of conventional astrophysics, who 
who don't talk about God. They certainly don't talk about the Urantia book or anything like that. The probabilities alone that there are li- that there is life on other planets is enormous. Enormous probability that there is life elsewhere. All right. So let's say that there is intelligent human type of life on many, many, many of these other planets out there. Okay. Why would we expect that they all would have the same evolutionary timeline that Earth humanity has? So let's just say for for round numbers, let's say that Earth humanity came to a point of of sentience and free will, okay, Uh, and enough uh, moral compass to be able to, to say, okay, I, I can be part of an actual culture, and I'm capable of recognizing that I'm a created being, and, and I have these, these uh, appendages on the end of my arms that will allow me to build, uh, use my creative mind to, to innovate, invent, construct, and start to, to improve my life conditions on the planet. So now we have all the potential there for a progressing civilization. Okay, what would it be about a realization that there are many, many other inhabited planets out there that would lend us to think that they would be at the exact stage of evolution and and civilization progress as we would be? It wouldn't make sense. Yeah, well, just to point out that even people on this planet are not altogether equal in their evolutionary ascent. Exactly. In, in, in terms culturally, right? Yep, mm-hmm. yep. Because we know anywhere you can hopscotch around our planet, you will find anywhere from you know Aboriginal forest dwellers, you know, to people who are living in modern cities. Okay, very, very different as far as type of technology that they they are using in their daily lives, etc. And their sophistication as far as knowing, you know, kind of basic knowledge of of the planet and the operations of all the different functions in a in a civilization. Okay, so we we hear that this planet, you know, been here for 4.5 billion years or so. Uh, let's just use the assumption that Earth humanity has been around for 1 million years. Okay, and let's say uh, right now we are at this point in time where the technological progress can be described absolutely as exponential in the acceleration of technological development. So whether you look at uh, telecommunications, whether you look at computing, whether you look at aerospace industrial applications, whether you look at medical imaging, you know, with like, uh, you know, MRI, right. CAT scans, all that kind of stuff. In any real serious technological endeavor on this planet we are in an exponential growth in knowledge and innovation and uh, um, and application of new advances in science and engineering okay exponential so the difference between you know 20 25 years ago and right now who had a mobile phone right. 25 years ago nobody right who had a a laptop like we do today, that would have been far in advance 
of anything that NASA had when we first went to the moon. Nobody did 25 years ago. But yet here, everyone has this. Every child practically has in their hand this mobile communication device that also is essentially, in relative terms, is a supercomputer compared to what what NASA had uh, in order to do the Apollo missions. Right. Okay, so that's how fast the technology has advanced in just a, a few short decades. We're in this this exponential growth period. So if we're to look at what's going on out there in the cosmos on other inhabited planets, it would be absolutely unreasonable to think that there aren't civilizations that are perhaps millions of years in advance of us. Okay? Right. But even the, the point is, even if they're a few decades in advance, they might be quite a bit more progressed not only in their technology, but in their their civilization, it might be in their cultural ethics, and it might be in their own biological evolution and the evolution of their minds and in their spiritual understanding. Yeah. And and I think it is very, very likely, even without what the Urantz book has to say about it, that in the probabilities about how many civilizations are likely out there, many, many, many of them would be at a higher stage of spiritual understanding than we are here on our little planet. So, from this little you know, point of reckoning, the question is pertinent, is there a universal religion among the advanced inhabited planets? Okay? So, that's how the question has been posited. Now, I took the opportunity to put together this presentation that we referred in our last conversation and presented it at a major UFO conference back in February of 2020. And, you know, kind of the, the right out of the gate here addressing the religion component of the question itself, well, if we're going to ask the question, is there a universal religion, we really should define religion. And if you look up you know, in the dictionary, you're generally going to find, you know, a few different common definitions of religion. You know, probably the first and most fundamental is religion can be defined as the belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal god or gods. Next, it might be defined as a particular system of faith and worship. And then lastly, uh, religion could be defined as a pursuit or interest to which someone ascribes supreme importance. So those are all kind of conventional definitions of religion. But as I've thought about it, and including looking very hard at what the Urantia book has to say about it, because it has a lot to say about religion, for sure. And, it, and it's really worth studying what the Urantia book has to say about it. But in order to distill it down into one sentence, which was a super challenge for me, given the central question in this presentation, this is what I came up with, that a better definition of religion is the following. Religion is the personal and individualized embrace of knowledge and effort directed toward understanding and successfully navigating reality. Reality with a big R. So again, a better definition of religion is the personal and individualized embrace of knowledge and effort directed toward understanding 
and successfully navigating reality. That's right. Okay? So, That's right. Yeah, how's that sound to you, Jeff? So, Joel, spot on. I, I think when we talk about the universality of religion, you're spot on because it really is about the human being uh, developing his intellectual level. And as, this, and as this process occurs over a period of time, first as an individual and then as on a society level, on a social level, then we begin to see the reality of not only the material universe, but the spiritual aspect of the universe. And it's that spirituality combined with material materialism, materi- the material world, the physicality of the world. When those two realities converge, that's when we start to approach on a collective level as a species the era of light and life. And then as we ascend inward toward recognizing the I am of the universe, we receive additional information through revelation because we're more prepared. So, for example, as a good example, Melchizedek came and taught monotheism to Abraham. And it was that that instruction that prepared the way so that when Christ came, where the Son of Man was bestowed, there would be a group of people who would recognize him. In the same way, the Urantia book is preparing us, those who embrace it, for a future age where even more truth will be revealed to us because we'll be capable. And I think this process plays itself out on every world where there are will creatures. That's the plan. And you just said it, and I just said it. We both just said the same thing, I think. It's it's a better perception of the the greater reality. That's what, what the plan is. Be you perfect, even as I am perfect. It's God's way of saying, I need you to help me get to the supreme being. I need your experience to help me gain the experiential reality, because existentially, God is perfect. But... I believe that dialogue was, well, I'm not really perfect unless I've gone through every experience known to happen. The only way I can do that is to to divest myself completely to creation. And that's what we're in the middle of. So we're at planet 606 of the Satania system. So that means there's 605 other planets just in our system alone that have evolved will creatures like ourselves. So we're about halfway, a little bit more than halfway towards our own system getting to that point where we have at least a thousand worlds, right? And eventually each one of those thousand worlds will evolve to a point to the era of light and life. Yes. Right. That's a pretty good grasp of it, right? But, and the book says we are a long, long way yeah, long way from achieving the era of, of light and life. I mean, we're still warring uh, with over petty issues on our, our planet. We're a long oh, yeah. way from it. Look at the I Taliban. Think- I mean, the Taliban is a good picture into the past of how humans yes. really practice their religions. Yes. Not not picking so on do. them because they're Muslim or anything. It's just, no. it's not the religion itself. It's the way that they practice it. That that was very common 
the Jews practice their religion in much the same way, or the, you know, maybe some faction of the early Hebrews. I mean, every every the the Native Americans practiced a pretty savage the, the Incas. You know, so these yeah. are evolutionary stages. We're in an evolutionary stage of existence, like you said. Uh, things are going crazy right now because once once we invented the light bulb and once everybody could read and once you know once the the food uh scarcity got solved and once we you know once we could all have language and read books and write books and have dialogue we entered a new phase of human existence but we're only yeah. just entering it this is just the beginning and unfortunately there's a lot of chaos right now and then i think the urantia book says you know that that's where the the lessons are learned, really. So, any right. thoughts on all that? Yeah, well, I think you brought up good points about how you know we have examples on our on our planet, not just in the past, but currently, where religion essentially is tribal, and it it might even be called more cultural. Yeah, but certainly it's evolutionary in in most of its content and with some sprinkling of revelation in it, all right? And you mentioned Melchizedek, uh, who clearly, on his arrival 4,000 years ago, he had an enormous influence in seeding the evolutionary religions, the tribal religions, with actual revelation of truth. And now he did it, you know, using, uh, basically he was trying to rehabilitate the the, sev- the same seven moral precepts of religion that had been taught, uh, you know, several hundred thousand years previously uh, during the administration of the planetary prince, and then later, you know, some 37,000 years ago with Adam and Eve, when they resurrected those same seven moral and spiritual precepts in their teachings uh, that that were subsequently sent out with some of the Adamic uh, messengers through what they called the Sethite Brotherhood. Right. Okay, but then then Melchizedek did it much more extensively in preparation for the arrival of, of Christ Michael here on our world, 2,000 years after Melchizedek, who, who was Jesus of Nazareth. Now, those teachings of Melchizedek were spread far and wide throughout, certainly, the, the Near East, uh, Middle East and Near East, and they greatly influenced the tribal religions at the time, and and it resulted in what basically became the, the core of the, you know, Abrahamic religion right and and their beliefs because if you look at the the commandments of Moses which essentially are a restatement of those seven core moral and spiritual precepts that that uh, Melchizedek taught that's largely what builds builds the spiritual and ethical framework around each of the religions you know of Judaism Christianity and Islam and also you find them within quite a few other religions as well, including, uh, you know, the religions of, of, of Hinduism and Buddhism and, and others. They, Taoism. It was, they were so far-reaching in his, 
uh, the effects of Melchizedek in his teachings. It just can't be underestimated. Yeah, I mean, he basically prepared the soil and preserved the, you know, the light of truth from extinguishing. And I think we may, you know, you you, you bring up a good point. <clears throat> the removal of the Ten Commandments, in my mind, uh, is a symbol of the retrograde motion of society. We should be embracing the wisdom of each and every one of those instead of being offended by them. But people, think about Absolutely. you go into a building, what kind of a person you must be where you get offended by seeing the Ten Commandments? Like, what would make you be offended by seeing something? What offends you? Uh, people that say, you know, when I see people wearing a cross, I get offended. Like, why would you be offended? And that's just how twisted yes. this world has become. And here's the other thing, too. <clears throat> I was thinking about this today. You know the story of Lot's wife from Genesis? Yes. Uh, it, it's so metaphoric, it'll blow you away. To me, the vaccination is the equivalent. Well, maybe it's a little strong because I, I do think there's some medical benefits to the vaccine. I'm not I'm not going all anti-vax on anybody. I just don't like being forced. I don't like mandates from my government. It gets in the way of me and my doctor, and I don't like that. But what I do like is that, you know, Lot was warned, you, you know, you better get out of here because some some bad stuff's going to happen. Now, it could be, I don't know, the Urantia book doesn't really give a lot of light, but they do say that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was a wholly natural event. They do state that. And then just weeks ago, uh, some uh, archaeologist or paleontologist or, or, I don't know, somebody decided that they figured that around that time, around, and they pegged it within 300 years of, of Abraham, which would have been about 1900 B.C., that there was an asteroid shower in that region of the Middle East, and it probably rained brimstone and fire and everything else, and it probably destroyed a lot of area. That science can prove was likely to have happened. It is probably that event. If, if that's true, I'm going to suggest that the, the two angels that are written about in Genesis probably were aware of that astronomical event, that it was yeah. coming. I mean, they, they have access to information that we mortals simply don't have access to. So right. Lot would have been warned, hey, by the way, and I don't know how it survived. That's the amazing thing. It actually survived in the Bible. <laughs> it survived 4,000 years, you know. Yeah. But in the same way, there are people like Lot's wife who, who metaphorically don't want to let go. They don't want to let go of materialism. They don't want to let go of that life that they of comfort that they leave because it means that they're unsafe. They're, they're not in, you know. And I think that's where we're at today is a lot of people don't want to trust faith because yeah. then they're alone. They're, they're not part of the system. And yeah. they, they need the system to thrive and, and be alive and be connected. And, uh, that's a, right? So. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And what, how do they describe the consequence to Lot's wife? It's that she... She turned her back on the progress yes. away from the devastation that was occurring, okay, and looked at the devastation, continued to look, and she was turned to a pillar of salt. Right. And so the Urantia and so, book, to me, so is she, telling she, us she, 
you know. Yeah, she so she essentially became fossilized in at least metaphoric terms. So she was not progressing. She was not truly living. Okay, and she was fixated on, as you said, on not letting go. Right. Despite despite being warned right. that this this is going to crumble and this has no value to you. You need to move forward. Okay, and so it's an incredible metaphor for what I believe is going on when people have those those really. Uh, nasty reactions to things that actually should be uplifting to them. An image of Jesus being merciful or healing or teaching, that's an, that's an uplifting image. For people to have disdain toward it just really says something a lot about that person than it does about what Jesus is doing. Right, and then, of course, they're burning down churches in, all yeah, across Canada. Defacing, right. you know, it, uh, removing monuments, and Saint Francis just got removed from a, a park in California. I mean, for God's sakes! I mean, the guy loved animals, didn't he? Found the, uh, you know, the uh, pita or something like that. Or I mean, so I, I we are in this period. Paper one ninety five is, is the last part of it. Really, sort of nails it that uh, you know eventually the triumph of Jesus's teachings will prevail. But in order to get there, we're going to have to go, we're going to have to get so sick of ourselves that we realize that there there is no other way. And, and just following up on the universal religion, I, I agree with you. I, I think that we get to a point philosophically and intellectually and spiritually where it's not even really considered religion; it's just considered the truth. And yes. we and that's good. what we'll get to. That's a good. That's a really good point, Jim. See, it doesn't really matter how we how we label these things because, as we've seen, labels are very malleable right now, especially in this this very political correct oh, sure. uh, environment, and especially where 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 people are trying to weaponize language, they're trying to use it for some type of political or cultural advantage, and and they're distorting and twisting uh, what have always been the conventional meaning of words, and they're doing it. To, to, to try to to further their their ideology which which I think in itself is a real bastardization of our culture but with the term religion itself it doesn't really matter that that word is there you know so much but what does it really mean mm-hmm. in our lives and and I think the concept uh, in the definition I provided uh, about the personal and individualized embrace of knowledge and effort directed toward understanding and successfully navigating reality with a big R, it starts with the personal and individualized embrace. So religion, right. really, in order to be meaningful and maximally helpful to us in our in our spiritual progress, it requires us to take it seriously and to embrace it on the individual level, the personal level, with the understanding that our God loves us so much that he actually has imparted a part of himself into our own minds that is always there. It's live. It's vibrant. It's real. It's powerful. It contains all the, all the prerogatives 
of the creative father. And it is what the Urantia book calls the thought adjuster or the indwelling spirit of God in our minds. That is a reality. That is with each human being on this planet. And to engage with that reality on this personal level as an individual is is really the 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 key to making tremendous progress in our spiritual life. And the Urantia book does uh, spends a lot of time on that whole aspect yeah. of of recognizing the presence of the the thought adjuster in our minds and and how it is always leading us toward Inward. greater yeah. choice for truth and beauty and goodness and and viewing our fellow uh, you know fellow humans on this planet as also being part of the family of God. And so, as Jesus would say it, you know, he was trying to teach about the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, that by recognizing our relationship as a child mm-hmm. of the, the universal father, boy, does that impart dignity to our lives, to recognize that we are a child of the creator of a vast universe, yeah. that implies a hell of a lot of dignity and also a lot of responsibility. There, there, there are responsibilities that come with the dignity of being a child of God. But we're so far away from that. I mean, you and I, you and I having this conversation, and I know there are people that are listening agree, and we have that fellowship in agreement, but there's so many people that are so far away from even conceiving of what you just said. What are you talking about, Father? I mean, that's the first objection right there. What do you mean, a patriarchy? Oh, you mean God's a man but not a woman? Why isn't God a woman? You get into these ridiculous intellectual discussions, which, by the way, I never get into, but you know right. they're waiting to happen if you start bringing it up. I want to bring yeah. up a point about what you just said, which I think could help people. You know, you talk about that indwelling spirit. It, uh, what I used to call it was my PB, my perfected being. Even as a kid, I recognized that there was going to be a future me, so I would have conversations with that future me. That future okay. me was the indwelling spirit. That's my little conversation going on in my head when I'm nine years old, and I don't realize why I'm doing it. But do you know that somebody pointed out in the movie, remember the movie uh, Cast Away with Tom Hanks when yes. he's out on that island? You he know, somebody, yeah, points, so, somebody points out to me that not until the ball where the ball, you know, what was it? Spalding? No, no. Wilson. Wilson! Wilson. Right? When he <laughs> starts to engage with that ball as his alter ego, that's when his life starts getting better on the island. Yes. Interesting. Yes. And I thought that, wow, what an interesting thing. You know, in a person's life, and I know a lot of people in my life that I love, until they have that initial conversation with their inner spirit, their life sort of doesn't go beyond. Or if it does, it doesn't, it doesn't go exponentially. I think that's that the demarcation. Great, that is a great point. Yeah, a yeah. great point. Because we are persons, yes. and our our personality was imparted to us by a personal creator. 
and the way we advance in our understanding of spiritual reality is, as you said, by making that initial outreach or mm-hmm. the, the little telephone call to God, yeah. not as some impersonal principle of force right. in an endless cosmic universe, but no, as, as a contactable, loving personality. A parent. An actual family member. Right. That's right. (laughs) And as a divine parent. So, you know, none of us would hesitate if we came from a normal, you know, family where where there's generally harmonious relationships between the the children and the parents. None of us would hesitate at all picking up the phone and and calling mom or calling dad and and just kind of like just talking normally, just like, hey, here's how my day is going. You know, here's some troubles I'm having. Here's some victories that that I've experienced. Just the normal stuff and and all that. And the parent takes great delight in hearing from the children. So so for a person sometime in their their life, hopefully earlier rather than later, for them to make that same type of of phone call to the personal indwelling spirit of God mm-hmm. and just say, God. I'm here. Help. I trust you are there. I know I may not may not be able to hear you directly with my human ears, but I trust that you're there and I'm just going to share something with you. And it might be a, a moment of of concern, it might be yeah. just how my days go on or or geez, I don't seem to understand this or I I feel like I'm not navigating my life very well and I need some help. You know, just or, or hey, just look how beautiful that tree is in front of me with the fall colors. Yeah. And, and how glorious. Thank you for trees, God. You know, but that little, that little outreach to the Creator as a truly present, truly personal, and, and very loving and intensely interested divine parent in, in what its child is experiencing and so, so curious about what the child wants to speak about right now. That's, that's what the reality with a big R is, and taking that first step toward engaging the personal God that is very present in our minds, no matter whether you want to consider it as a, a God the Father, or God the Mother, or God the Spirit, or God the Son, or whatever, just forget those labels, because God is not male and female the way we think of genders here. It's That's just childishly immature, okay? But yeah. if it's more helpful for someone to think about God as Father, and as, as Jesus, you know, presented him, well, that might be easier for someone who had a really great human father, like I did. Yeah, okay? same here. Uh, and I also happened to have a really great uh, human mother, neither of whom are, are still on this planet, but I had the benefit of that experience from a strong family. And, yeah. and, you know, but for many people, they don't have a father on the scene. So the idea of father seems strange and alien and, and may be a source of some real heartache. So maybe God as mother just just feels better to them. Okay, well, good. We'll, we'll use that. You know, have that little first phone call with God the mother. But I think a, a danger sign in our society right now, it's 
where we have so many of our, our young people in particular who are no, well, they don't have... They're not making the call, see? Yeah, they're not making the call at all. In fact, you know, through this whole uh, cultural morass of, of these kind of moral relativism and anti-religion sentiments that you pointed out earlier, the increased abandonment of religion by young adults, and I would even say this, there is just an epidemic of unprecedented youth despair about the future or even about the present. Yeah. And that they have these feelings of desperation and meaninglessness, which essentially is nihilism. It's yeah. just like, what's, what's it even, why, why should I even engage in life anymore? It, it doesn't mean anything. I'm not going anywhere. I have no destiny. You know, there is no God. This is just all meaningless. So why don't I just party on and do self-destructive things? It means nothing. And that is just, a, it's a horrible epidemic that I see in our culture right now. It's a, it's a major reason why, why one of my current projects is to do outreach as a mentor toward, toward uh, young, young men in particular. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I am, I'm a man myself, of course. And I, and I see so many of these young men who are, who are just so uh, misdirected, they're so confused and floundering, uh, and they, they just don't know how to navigate even the reality with a small R, yeah. much less reality with a big R. Yeah. Well, I, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Next time, maybe we'll talk about that very subject, which is family and the importance of it. If the family breaks down, I think the the community is next and then society at large. And I think that's kind of where we're at. So somehow we have to figure out. You said something in your video presentation, which brought you to tears uh, on that very subject about the importance of, of children uh, and yes. young people. And I don't want to, but I could tell that, you, you know, listening to you just now, you know of where you speak. And that's why we appreciate you coming on and sharing it with us here on the Arantia Radio Podcast. So, Joel Garvin, we'll talk to you again soon. Any parting words before we say farewell on this uh, this Friday afternoon? Yes, and I think it's this. If you haven't done it before, consider making that first telephone call to the Spirit of God that is with you. And just see what happens. Just see what happens. Hello, this is God. I'm away from my phone right now. Leave your name and number at the sound of the beat. <laughs> Pleasure to speak with you again, and uh, we'll have you on again real soon. And maybe next time, I'm sure if people want to write in and ask questions, uh, we'd like to bring you back on. I like having you. It feels good to have you in the room. So I appreciate your time today, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jim.